Okay, Andrew, I want you to use your imagination for a minute. Can like you... Willy Wonka wanted me to? Concentrate, okay? Right. I, I really need you to concentrate on this. I want you to imagine that this is sometime in the, in the not-so-distant future. Picture a world, let's say, uh, let's say 2023, not, not too far from now, and imagine that all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you click on the news and aliens have just come down from space in a giant spaceship and they've landed in Canada. Why Canada? I don't know. Maybe they heard that they're very hospitable people. Okay. So they land in Canada and uh, the Canadians, they all come out of their houses and say, Oh, these... These uh these aliens seem okay. They don't seem like they're soakers or hosers. So I suppose they could stay, don't you know? So they all come out. They's like, okay, let's be chumly with these aliens. And the aliens tell the Canadians that they're planning on sticking around because uh, they don't have many oak trees on their home planet. Oh. And Canada has lots of oak trees. Yeah, they do. Not as many as maples, but they have oak trees. And so they tell the Canadians... Um, as many oak trees as you can bring us, we're going to uh, bring them to us every year. We're going to come back and load them up our spaceship, and we'll give you guys all sorts of uh, goodies from our home world, including super laser weapon technology. Mm. So the Canadians go, oh, we don't really use weapons much, but uh, I suppose that would be great. All the Canadians go out with all their lumberjack buddies, and they start chopping down all the oak trees and bringing them to the aliens. And uh, they start to make a ton of money and get a ton of influence because all the other countries around, Obama and everybody are saying, uh, I sure hope Obama's not still president <laughs> in 2023, but regardless, go ahead. Okay, let's say, uh, what, what's Hillary's daughter's name? Chelsea? So Chelsea Clinton is president, and she's getting mad because she wants to trade oak trees to the aliens for super laser technology and other goodies and things like that like really good whitening strips they got over in their alien homeworld things that we could really use here in america i see uh -huh. so anyway uh the canadians are out there chopping all the trees down and making all this money and this is going really good for about a hundred years until one day they go grab their axes and they walk out the door and they have what i like to think of as a lorax moment they walk outside and they cut down every single oak tree in all of Canada. Oops. The Canadians aren't stupid. They talk kind of funny, but they're not stupid. They know that these aliens aren't going to uh, stick around with them if they can't supply them with the oak trees. Uh, what do you do? You've just built your entire economy on gathering these oak trees and giving them to the aliens for goods. And now you are all out of the one thing that the aliens want. So you can either roll over and die, or you could use some of that super high-tech laser technology and go grab some more land. Hmm. Hello, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 12, The Romans of the New World. Last time, Caleb, we talked about how the Iroquois and the Huron came into conflict and how the Huron ended up getting mostly destroyed mm -hmm. by the Iroquois. Just a remnant of them have fled west and a small other refugee population has gone to 
the French in their cities and towns. And then the rest have been absorbed and assimilated by the Five Nations. And then some other stragglers have headed to go be refugees in some other nations. The Iroquois aren't going to take too kindly to this, and they're going to turn their attention towards these other nations that are harboring these people. And it serves a dual purpose. One, they get to get rid of these Huron refugees that could come back to bite them in the future. And secondly, they can find some oak trees. Right, Caleb? That's right. Uh, a lot of times with war, a lot of times people are just looking for an excuse to go and conquer a country. So this gave the Iroquois a great in on some of their, you know, kind of neutral, sometimes enemy, sometimes trading partner, uh, neighboring nations, when all of a sudden large amounts of your enemies are fleeing as refugees and being absorbed into their nation, all of a sudden you can say, wait a minute, these are my enemies and they're in your town, and this gives you... And they you... could be tilting them back towards fighting us. Exactly. Uh, I like to compare it to... Uh, the Roman Republic when they're fighting against Carthage and then they fight the the second Punic War gets over with but there's this one guy named Cato the Elder and he's constantly railing Carthage must be destroyed Carthage must be destroyed and eventually the Romans use it as just one random pretext a really frivolous thing to go to war against Carthage because they really don't want them coming back to destroy them a, a, again mm -hmm. and they level Carthage to the ground uh, you can draw the parallels to that so, um, kind of like why we've called this the Romans of the New World, that's um, what Arthur Parker called them. He was a renowned Seneca uh, historian, anthropologist, and author. And author. And he was also one of the premier um, Rochester Museum and Science Center's uh, curator directors. Now, he didn't just call them the Romans of the New World because of their warlike stature, but also because, as we mentioned, they were very renowned for being great orators in rhetoric and speaking, and they had a way of carrying themselves about, and with their constitutional-style council government. Yeah, that's true, and there was also a lot of other similarities, too, in the sense that Rome, for a long time, was just kind of a regional power where, you know, if you walked in somewhere in western New York, they would be somebody that you had to contend with. But other than that, you really didn't have to worry about them much. But then, like Rome, uh, due to uh, situations that happened, they wound up getting more and more powerful before they even realized how powerful they had become and the influence that they had throughout the whole Northeast, basically, especially Great Lakes region. Mm -hmm. They're, they're kind of this 200-pound uh, 13-year-old that doesn't quite know their own strength yet. And they're suddenly starting to realize it because they're going up against people that they used to have trouble with and they've been kind of afraid of. And now all of a sudden, they start falling over like flies. Today we're going to talk about three of the nations that the Iroquois get involved with in the... This era is called the Beaver Wars. Now, there's no specific Beaver War per se, but it's just the beavers, as we alluded to as the allegory, is the beavers are the oak tree. The beavers are the trade that's going on between the Iroquois and the Eastern <clears throat> nations. So this narrative starts around uh, mid-1600s. So they've already been trading all their beavers for over 100 years with the Dutch and French and English and whoever will give them a good price for them. So they've basically... By the mid-1600s, there is not a beaver left in New York State. And like we said in our, oak, in our Canadian oak tree story, this is the main driving force of their economy, and this is what the Europeans want and need. 
So their only choice is to either give up the trade monopoly that they've established over the past hundred years, and then all the stuff you've come to rely on, your pots and pans, your, your new uh, European garments made out of cotton and uh, different fabrics, because th these things are a lot better than what you were used to having, mm -hmm. and they're a lot more durable, and they improve your quality of life. And so if you had to go back to clay pots and deer skins, yeah. it, it could be a real detriment to your whole society. Can you imagine if all of a sudden we had to give up iPhones? Yeah. Imagine if we had to give up all the technology that we've gotten in the past hundred years and go back to the way we lived a hundred years ago in America. So internet, TV, and any kind of locomotion. I can guarantee you we would fight our neighboring country to keep that. Yes. So, um, like I said, we're going to talk about three of the nations that they came into conflict with. The one is going to be the Winro, the Neutrals, and the Erie. So we should probably talk about where these folks are, right? So the Winro first, Caleb, you ever heard of them? Uh, I'll just say for, uh, for good oratory. No, I've never heard of them, Andrew. Why is that? <laughs> um, because they're gone. <laughs> the Winro actually occupied most of western New York. Everything from the Genesee River going west, so pretty much from Rochester to Buffalo to the Niagara River, yeah. was Wenro territory. Yeah, originally. I, was, I was surprised when I was looking at it on the map because I just assumed that was always Seneca land. Uh, Seneca land. Seneca was really kind of squished between uh, Cayuga Lake and, and Rochester in that thin strip. But once the neutral were gone, they had a pretty big pretty big increase in their territory. Yeah, so the Wenros were kind of marginally aligned with the neutrals, and the neutrals were on the other side of the Niagara River. You know how Canada, you've got Ontario, and it kind of got that foot that dips down into the Great Lakes, yep. and there's that foot that goes around Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, and then Lake Michigan. And so the neutrals were all along that corridor, going from Niagara across Hamilton, uh, Woodstock, modern-day London, Ontario, all the way to Sarnia, and then even into Michigan. That yeah, was so the neutral So if you're territory. looking at a map and you see Niagara Falls, you'd basically take that chunk mm -hmm. right there on the other side of the river. Yep. And, and that was their land. Yep. And then we have the Erie, which um, they were up... Their territory kind of ran from just south of Buffalo down into the Allegheny region, then into Erie, Pennsylvania, and some of northern Ohio. So mentioning the Wenro, they had this loose alliance with the Erie and the Neutrals. Now these are all Iroquoian people, Caleb, like the Huron, like the Iroquois, like the Susquehannock. They share an Iroquoian language and a similar culture. But that being said, they're still distinctly different peoples and cultures and dialects. Um, so the Neutrals and the Wenro were kind of marginally aligned, but you've got that great Niagara River separating the two of them, so that doesn't keep them as a unified nation. It mm -hmm. keeps them very autonomous and out of the way. Because if you've ever seen the Niagara <clears throat> yeah, River... I was going to point that out to our listeners. It's hard to really put in perspective the Niagara River unless you've seen it. You Think know. of four Great Lakes, and there's one outlet emptying into it. Yeah. And the Niagara River now, compared to the Niagara River then, is a lot different because they've turned it down. Like Niagara Falls now is, what is it at? Like, it's a fraction of its yeah. potential power. And they keep it low on purpose so it doesn't erode the falls and they can get the power stations working properly. But they've dug a canal, a channel, to reroute around the Niagara River and it goes through Canada to let ships through. And so the Niagara River is this massive, massive river with rapids and a strong, strong current. Mm -hmm. Crossing it is no easy picnic. No, especially around there. You know, there's the point of no return. 
that you hear about, there's a point of no return in Niagara Falls, and if you go past that point of no return, you can't even... It scares me just thinking about trying to row canoe across that river. So that, it was a natural barrier. Our first records we get with the Wenro dealing with the Iroquois going to war with them. So this is in 1638. This is backing up a bit. So they go to war against them, and there were probably skirmishes going back and forth from time immemorial. But in 1638, they had a big battle, and they dealt them a devastating blow. But you got to remember, the Seneca and most of the Iroquois didn't really have guns at this point. The ones that did were mainly the Mohawk because they were trading with the Dutch first, mm-hmm. and guns kind of slowly trickled west. And yeah, the Mohawks got the guns, but that doesn't mean that they're going to... They prized those. You know, they were some of their greatest possessions, so they, they weren't so quick to just start passing them off to, to their other families on the side. And they probably the did, nation. but I'm sure that there was a premium on them. Yeah. So don't think of the Seneca as being hugely heavily armed at this point. And so they had a a large battle with them, but it wasn't like they absolutely destroyed them. But it was a pretty significant battle. A few years later, they did get guns. And so now we're talking about 1643. Now picture that this is the same time that the war with the Huron is going on. But the Seneca realized that at the same time the war with the Huron is going on, if we could expand into western New York, you know, there's probably a lot more beavers. There's a lot of small lakes. There's a lot of rivers in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we can find some more of these animals. And if you go anywhere east of there, you're just running into areas that are already being settled and already have been depopulated as opposed to the west. Even for the, the Indian nations, there was a lot more land and a lot less people. Mm-hmm. Now, the Wenro, we had mentioned that they were kind of cut off by the Niagara River, and they were in this alliance with the Neutrals and with the Erie. But when push came to shove, they really didn't get any help. They were kind of left high and dry. They decided that the Wenro were a small nation, they weren't really worth getting involved with, and they left the Wenro out to dry. Mm-hmm. What they didn't realize... Or maybe what they didn't properly uh, realize was that the Wenro were their buffer country between them yeah. and the Iroquois, who they basically had very, you know, not too much contact or war with. And now all of a sudden, you know, kind of like the Romans giving the, the Huns, you know, just like worthless land is like a buffer between them, uh, and letting the, the the Goths and the Ostrogoths kind of propping them up and giving them weapons so that they can deal with the Huns. All of a sudden, they're gone. And now you have this young, powerful nation right on your doorstep. Yep, so in 1643, uh, the Iroquois destroy the the Wenro villages, and they're utterly conquered. They take them back to the Seneca and the other Iroquois nations, and they're totally assimilated. And so now, the Iroquois have all of pretty much northern New York. You've got all the way from the Hudson River and the Mohawk Valley, Adirondacks, uh, central New York Finger Lakes, and then western New York to the Niagara River. So that's, that's not a small amount of territory mm-hmm. to start. And meanwhile, the Huron Wars are still going on up north as this is happening. And like you said, now that this buffer state is gone, you've just got the Niagara River separating them. Now we mentioned that it's a formidable river, but that's the only barrier you have now. So the neutrals and the Iroquois are butting up together. Now, why are they called the neutrals, Caleb? What's up with that name? Yeah. Uh, do you remember what their real name is? I can't pronounce it. Yeah. Anyway, the neutrals for a long time had this great ability to, uh, to not cause friction with anybody. They wanted their country to be a place where Erie, where Huron, where Iroquois, they could all come and trade. And once you were in their country, they had a policy where once you're in here, we all have to 
act as if we're all trading partners. And this worked for over a hundred years, but uh, the Iroquois patience and uh, is is growing a little thin at this point. Yep. Dude. So. The Iroquois and the Huron are fighting this war right now, back and forth. Raids are coming in both sides. And predominantly, we had mentioned that a lot of battles between the Mohawk are going up to the Huron, uh, up Lake Champlain and attacking that way. But in the middle, we've got Lake Ontario. So picture it like, if we're using this Roman comparison, picture it like the Mediterranean Sea. And so you've got the lower rim is Iroquois and the northern rim is Huron. And then on the far, far west, kind of where Spain would be, is where the neutrals are. And so you can go up Lake Champlain, or you can go around through Niagara and get up and attack the Huron that way. And it works both ways. And so the neutrals said, anybody that wants to come through, go ahead, bring your war party through. We don't mind. Stop at our village, eat our food. Bring trade. your beaver pelts, bring <laughs> your guns, bring your <laughs> trade trinkets. with us. If you want to go up and attack the Huron, you can sleep here and go on the next day. But it was working both ways. And so the Iroquois are like, okay, yeah, it's working both ways. But then all of a sudden, the Huron, as they become more and more destroyed and are fleeing as refugees, they're getting absorbed. They're running to the neutrals for protection. And the Iroquois are worried that that's going to turn around and now the neutrals have been the buffer state between the Huron and the Iroquois but as more and more Huron are taking over they're worried that they're going to totally shift the balance and then they've got an enemy right on their doorstep yeah, again as opposed to being across the lake mm -hmm. now all of a sudden you're literally 10 miles from a Seneca town and a neutral town so you're dealing with many variables there's not one real reason so you've got the reason of people, refugees going into your neighboring country. You've got beaver pelts you need to get, and you've got a dwindling population because of plagues. Yep. Oh, I also think it's important to point out, everybody knows that the Mohawk warriors were like the, f the fiercest, most feared warriors, you know, in the Northeast. So these, these Mohawk are invading, uh, you know, up in, up in France, and, uh, or in New France, and attacking the Huron, and bringing back spoils and getting honor for themselves. Meanwhile, you're a young Seneca warrior, and you're 300 miles away from that. In their culture, it was important. It was like it was what made you mad. It, it was if if you could go out and be a great warrior, it would really bring up your esteem in your village and show that you have strong arenda. Yes, if you remember the arenda we talked about, that you know they're they're in your spirit and strength. Mm -hmm. So. That's kind of a far way to go to prove to your village that you're a man, but here you are in Seneca, Cayuga territory, and it's a lot easier to go and fight this much closer, most clo much closer enemy. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see some things start to, the Seneca are going to start to rise and become one of the more predominant nations as time goes on in the nation, and the Seneca will be known as the most fearsome. Uh, many things play into that. One, the Mohawk have been having more contact with Europeans, and therefore disease is taking a bigger toll on them. And then the Seneca have unlimited potential to expand west, which we're going to see in a minute. Now, just because they were called the neutrals doesn't mean that they were totally neutral and innocent. Now, they, they tried to placate the Iroquois and the Huron and not cause a trouble there. But the neutrals were a very large and powerful nation. They estimate that there could have been, at their peak, 40,000 people, which far surpasses... Uh, what the Iroquois are at at this point, and the Huron. So the neutrals, uh, of course, this plays into why the Iroquois are so scared of them. 
potentially switching sides. Um, but the Huron uh, and the neutrals had done a lot of raiding west because they're looking for beaver pelts too that they can trade. And so they had uh, attacked Potawatomi Algonquin people out in Michigan and the neutrals were expanding far west all the way into modern day Detroit, Michigan. Wow. There's one story where they attacked and destroyed uh, a village and a nation in Michigan and they brought back all the women and children as captives. But the men, they blinded them all and they didn't kill them. They just let them wander aimlessly in the woods until they died from like hunger or wild animals or the elements. So uh, they, to say that they were neutrals uh, doesn't mean that, you know, their, their hands were all uh, clean and shiny as well. Um, they, you know, I... You know, the, a lot of the Seneca did mean things, but I, I've never seen them do anything quite that nasty to an entire nation. Now, another thing that's uh, unique to the neutrals is they were big into tattoos, weren't they? Yeah, uh, a lot of the French writers mentioned that when they went and visited them, they couldn't find a single person that wasn't painted or tattooed in some way. It was just... And so can you imagine a whole nation? You know, we talk about black people, white people, Asian people, red people. Well... What about the Rainbow Coalition here with the neutrals? Can you imagine an entire nation of people that have tattoos with black and red and different colored streaks on their faces and bodies in intricate artwork? That could be very uh, terrifying to someone who's never seen that before. Mm -hmm. We mentioned before that they were an Iroquoian people, but they didn't exactly have the same kind of system of government as uh, the Five Nations did. A lot of their stuff was more leader-inspired. Mm -hmm. A lot of their villages were run by a single leader yeah, versus and, councils. And it also tended to be much more like the European ways where a strong male tended to have a lot more influence on their villages. Mm -hmm. And now that's not to say that it always was, but it tended to be much more like that than the Iroquois nation, which always had the clan mothers that would have the final say in the village. But that being said, there were several neutral towns that had a female leader, mm -hmm. but not like what we had mentioned with the Iroquois where it was like a council of clan mothers. It was like a queen over a certain town. So you had kings and queens, depending on their prestige probably, uh, for leadership skills. We don't know a lot about their system of government because, as we're going to see <laughs> soon, uh, the neutrals are going to go the way of the Wenro pretty quick. Yeah, you got to remember these nations that we're talking about are so far to the west at this time in history that there's very little like documentation even from like the jesuits and things like that the jesuits uh never even really met a lot of these people they knew about them because they heard about them from the huron mm -hmm. and they may go stay in their village for a few weeks yeah. just on a traveling circuit but the, yeah they don't have time to sit down and say so tell me your entire oral history yeah. and uh, where you came from so a lot of the history that we have from this is basically oral tradition that's passed down from the Iroquois and the, the last few Huron that, you know, survived. Now, their government wasn't exactly like the Iroquois, but like you said, the Iroquois people, it, the, as far as like their hunter-gatherer, the way they did farms, they were big on the beans, squash, and corn, just mm -hmm. like the Iroquois, longhouses, yep. palisade walls. Hunting deer. Yeah, hunting deer, uh, Everything we talked about, you can basically apply other than, you know, some techniques would be a little different. But other than that, they were basically uh, basically the same mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yep. 
When we mentioned that refugees are starting to flee to the neutrals, we're not talking about like five or six people fleeing. We're talking about like in one group, 800 whole people uh, fled and were absorbed by the neutrals. That's, a, that's not a small number. That could be the size of a small town hamlet back in a thing. And if you look into that, you could have 200 warriors in that group. Mm-hmm. So that's not a small amount. And that's just one group. So you literally had thousands of these Huron coming in. And so the, the Seneca in 1647, they send an ultimatum to the neutrals. And they say, you need to stop sheltering these Huron war parties. They're coming across the river. They're attacking us. And they're staying with you guys. And you're neutral with us. And so we can't come back in and fight. You're sending the people out on war parties, and they're attacking us, and then you're supposed to be neutral. What's up with that? At the same time, though, we had mentioned that the Eries are a little bit south to us, and the Eries and the neutrals were kind of in this loose alliance. And like we saw before with the Wenro, the Eries decide, yeah, we're not going to get involved. And that leaves the neutrals on their own, because now they've absorbed some Huron, but there's no Huron nation anymore. Mm-hmm. So it just leaves the neutral and the Iroquois in a one-on-one. And we mentioned, well, the neutrals had 40,000, so what's the problem? Why can't the neutrals defend themselves? Well, the Iroquois have laser guns. And then uh, the neutrals are also hit around this time with some huge plague and diseases because, remember, the Huron are fleeing as refugees. And some, it, some of the Huron at this point have already had a lot of these diseases from dealing with the French, and those that have survived have gotten some sort of immunity to it. But now these large groups of refugees are traveling down and moving into the longhouses and breathing the air of all these other people who have a lot less experience with it. And so a plague hits the neutrals, and they start dropping like flies. And so now we're seeing this play out again. And so the neutrals, they believe at the time when they went to war with the Iroquois, are numbering about 12,000. So over this time, uh, they had really, really gotten knocked down. So now they're about on par with where the Iroquois are at, but they don't have laser guns. Mm-hmm. Also, if you remember it in our first episode, the Peacemaker story, and the Peacemaker mentioned this uh, as far as making strong for peace uh, when he said that, you know, if you snap an arrow, you know, grab an arrow and break it and it snaps, but if you put five arrows together... The Iroquois were all working together. Mm-hmm. They had good communication. And this was a real league. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a loose uh, loose uh, group of allies like the Huron and the Neutral and the Erie. These people are literally all marrying into each other's families, having the clan system, sharing the clan system with each other, and going to war together and supporting each other. And even if they're not, they've got their back. So... The Seneca and Cayuga are going to head out and attack the Wenro, while the Onondaga and the Oneida say, okay, well, we're going to we're gonna watch the south for you and make sure that nobody mm-hmm. attacks and raids your villages while you're gone. And also, the, the neutral and the Erie, I'm sure in the back of their heads, they were thinking, if I go and attack the the Erico, if I go and attack the Seneca, maybe the Erie are going to come across and attack me from behind while I'm weak. But the, the Seneca could literally take every single one of their warriors... And head out, and they knew that the Cayuga, their brothers, would not come over and take advantage of them. Yeah, they're not going to stab them in the back because they're another nation, but they're allied together, and they trust each other. Mm -hmm. They're family. So that that ends up being a 
big disadvantage to some of these other nations for the next 60 years. So the Iroquois launch a full-blown invasion. This isn't like a raid. This is an invasion in the end of the autumn in 1650. They brought 1,600 warriors, which is not a small amount yeah. when we're talking about numbers at this point. Especially when you consider, like, hundreds of years later in, like, the Revolutionary War, some of the bigger battles were between 500 and, you know, 500 and 1,000 people. Yeah, these, so these are not insignificant numbers. Uh, they come back in the spring, and they destroy another neutral town. And then by 1653, they had practically destroyed most of the villages. The neutral nation, just like that, southern, southern Canada is gone within a decade of this fighting happening. The last mention in French writings is in 1671. So there was a remnant of people, you know, around for another 20 years, but pretty much they had been crushed almost before it got started. This is pretty rapid expansion. And like you said, the, the idea of the 200-pound, six-foot-three kid that's just gone through puberty and doesn't know his own strength. Meanwhile, back in Canada, the Mohawk we had mentioned are trading back and forth with the French and the Dutch trying to play them off one another to get the better prices. And the Mohawk have concluded a treaty with the French. You know, the Huron are defeated now. There's a few of them hanging out with the French. But they say, there's no hard feelings. We would like to trade with you. We want to be friends. And we're not going to attack you anymore because the Erie have really, really made us mad. And we're going to go to war with the Erie. And so don't worry, we're not going to be attacking you anymore. Now, the Iroquois have their whole western front that they're going to focus on because they've got no more enemies in the north and no more enemies in the east. And the French are could be a, a really big problem, but the French aren't a problem anymore. Yeah, you got to remember, the French got to make money too. They're there, their colonies and everything are only getting supplies shipped from London if they're filling up the supply boat every spring with furs to get taken back because the investors are sending them what they need to live but they can't justify doing it unless they're getting furs brought back yeah, so, so the french amsterdam london paris yeah. the french are sad to see their huron allies all killed and driven away but they're put between a rock and a hard place and they basically say okay we'll start trading with the iroquois and if they stop doing these raids because the, the iroquois were still doing these raids it, it was almost i was reading the journals of the french governors and it was several times a week in the summer, practically, where there was somebody somewhere getting shot at or some allied Indians were carried off. These raids were happening all the time. And so to finally say, all right, we don't have to deal with these Iroquois anymore, and they're going to bring us beaver pelts, and they're going to go attack some Indian nation 400 miles away, let them do it. Now the Iroquois are focusing on the Erie. But what did the Erie do to make the whole five nations so mad at them? Well, if we could find an Erie, we could ask him what they did to uh, make the Iroquois angry. Now, by saying find them, that implies that <laughs> these guys, too, are going to end up wiped off the map. Uh, basically, there, there is some evidence that some of them may have escaped. There's some pretty interesting evidence. It can't be proven, but they think that maybe even some of these uh, Western uh, nations that we see, that we run into like in the 1800s out west when we're moving to Oregon, we run into different nations there. And there's some evidence that they might be descendants of the Erie. Hmm. But basically, yeah, as far as the stage we're playing in, they get... As like, a nation. Yes, as a nation, they're wiped off the map as well. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so since we can't ask them what they did to make the Iroquois so angry, we have to just go and look and see what the Iroquois said that made them so angry. Which is actually kind of nice because now we're actually for the first time getting first-hand accounts of Iroquois people from their perspective of the war. Before, we're getting all this perspective from French writers. Mm -hmm. And it's been totally biased. And we've been cleaning it up to make it more balanced. But if you read it, it's actually quite racist because uh, they call them blood-curling savages with no soul, pretty much, with the way that they're attacking. Not the Jesuits didn't write all that way, but a lot of the French people did. So now we get to hear a lot of uh, one-sidedness from the Iroquois, which is still fun in its own way, but as the saying goes, the people who, who win get to write the history. Yeah. So we have a really cool telling here from Chief Black Snake. Now, Black Snake, I don't know how familiar you are with the Revolutionary War, but Black Snake is one of the chiefs of the Seneca Nation, and this guy lived forever. I mean, at the low end, he died around 100 years old. And so he saw the French and Indian War, the American Revolution, and the uh, War of 1812, and then he finally died in like the 1850s. <laughs> Almost to the Civil War. Yeah. It's just amazing. And so people, you say, well, what does that have to do with this time period? That's 100 years before. Well, if he's growing up, he's getting these oral accounts from his grandparents yes. on what happened. So this story that he wrote, he, he uh, claims that it was exactly as he was told. And it had been told, like we said, they didn't have a written language. But to them, if you said, oh, that doesn't count, it's not written down, they would say preposterous. Because they've been telling these stories from generation to generation, passing them down. So to them, the story is just as good as if it's written on a book. Mm hmm and so this is, this is quite a detailed story, and it's very colorful, uh, which I like. I mean, you've got to have, if you're going to tell a good story, you've got to make it a little, a little embellished, right? Yeah. And this is the story that the Iroquois would tell the next generation on what became of the Erie and why it happened. Yep, so we'll tell the story, and then we've got some other... Now, we don't have just... The great thing is, we don't have just writings from Black Snake. We've got other documented writings as well. And so we'll show it from the historical side, and we'll show it from what Black Snake was told from the Iroquois side. Okay, so at the time, the Iroquois still aren't the big dog on the block. And the Erie are looked at by all the other nations as being the most powerful and feared nation in the Great Lakes region. But all of a sudden, the Iroquois have formed this league of five nations, with the Mohawk, the Onondaga, the Oneida, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. So all of a sudden, this powerful group of Erie uh, are looking out and are kind of worried at the fact that there's these five lesser nations that are now all joining together. Because they could take out one of them, yeah. but probably not all of them. That's true. It's kind of like the, you know, how many babies could you take on? I could probably take more than five. Yeah, but okay. Let's say how many 16-year-olds uh, could you take on? could probably take on two or three, but getting to five, that gets tough. So anyway, the Erie, they want to show that they are still the top dog in, in the surrounding Great Lakes area. So they basically say... Okay, let's let's have a, a a way to show that we're still the best. So so what do they do, Andrew? They challenge them to a game, their national pastime, a lacrosse game, and so they send a delegation and they say we would love it if you could send your best warriors to come out and we could have a lacrosse tournament and see who's better, 
the Erie or the Iroquois. And the chiefs of the Erie said, we will put up a lot of furs and gifts and silver and, you know, all sorts of trinkets and wampum belts and put them in a pile. And you guys make a pile the same size. And then whoever wins will get all the goods. Mm. Um, so the Iroquois said, yeah, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. The Iroquois, like we said, they were still kind of intimidated by the Erie. So they politely declined the invitation. I'm sure that a lot of them were probably thinking, uh, we're not on very good terms with these people. It might be kind of dangerous for us to send 100 people there and play a game. And we think of our games as everybody slapping hands at the end of it and, you know, good game. But especially the game of lacrosse. They it was a did, very violent sport. Yes, it was It was a sport. They would do it for a pastime, but it was basically their version of boot camp for their warriors. You would play this game to become a good warrior. It would help build your cardio and your strength and also your hand-eye coordination. You're swinging the stick uh, like you would a weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they, they decline, and they don't just decline one time. Yeah, the, the Erie come back the following year and say, hey, uh, remember that we want to challenge you to that tournament? You want to come this year? And they said no. Meanwhile, though, all the young people in the Five Nations are clamoring and saying, we'd really like to go. We, we would love to challenge them. We, we can, can beat them. Yeah, we can beat them. Come on, we can beat them. And the old wise sachems and such are thinking, nah, th- this isn't good. We shouldn't do this. So the third year comes by. And they decline again, and all the kids are saying, "We're, you know, we want to be the underdogs and go in there and show them up in their home stadium, basically." So the old people finally relent, and so um, the warriors go. And of course, you got tagalongs. You know, picture, picture the Super Bowl. You got the the two huge teams going there, and they're going to fight for national honor. And the Iroquois get there, and it's a hard-fought lacrosse game. And modern lacrosse is. You know, you've got the indoor arena lacrosse, you've got outdoor lacrosse, you've got maybe a couple dozen people at most. But Indian lacrosse games could be, like you said, 100 people competing on an open field, trying to score. And who wins, Caleb? Well, uh, they get the 100 on 100, and they go out there, and uh, the Erie are expecting to crush them. And it pretty quickly becomes uh, a romp of the Iroquois trash in the Erie in the, the lacrosse tournament. Mm-hmm. And the Erie say, all right, all right, you won fair and square. Uh, have a nice trip home. Yeah, like we said, this is told from the Iroquois uh, perspective. And it basically shows the Iroquois being very graceful winners and the Erie being very sore losers. And they basically say, no, 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 no. Yeah, okay, you won that. But now, uh, it, basically, a be- it's a best out of three type of thing. Yeah, uh, what about racing? Yeah. You, you guys, I bet we could outrun you in a, in a foot race. So the, the chief of the Erie and some of his, his other uh, chiefs get together and they say, you pick your ten best warriors, and we'll pick our ten best warriors, and we'll have a race. And once again, the Iroquois are thinking, oh, this doesn't sound good. We should probably get our pile of loot we just won and try to get out of here. Because in the meanwhile, they can tell that this isn't a friendly game of football in the back lawn. They can see the looks in everybody's faces that they were expecting to school these hundred people. And now it, it's like uh, the Americans beating the Russians. Uh, nobody was expecting it. So the Iroquois win the foot race. And the Erie again say, well, what about wrestling? <laughs> uh, best three out of five <laughs> what about wrestling so they get uh, some wrestlers together 
and they say, here's what we're going to do. We'll do uh, Fight to the Death. Doesn't that sound exciting? Yeah, I can just picture all the sweat running down the Iroquois now. Because, yeah, the, the Erie Chief come up and say, okay, you get your best wrestlers, we get ours. And whoever beats the other wrestler, the winner gets to crush his head in and take his scalp with a tomahawk. And the, Iro the Iroquois say, oh, man, this doesn't sound good. But the noble Iroquois say, I know what I'll do. I'll win it, and then I won't kill him. Mm -hmm. And show everybody. Yeah. So... That's exactly what happens. The Iroquois win the wrestling match, and he's got the guy there, you know, picture it like in Gladiator. He's got the tomahawk holding it over his skull, and then, you know, he gets the guy to say yield, and then he just turns around and walks away. Well, the Erie take that very gracefully, and they're really glad that they spared them, and they're really uh, humble in victory, right? Yeah. No. So the chief of the Erie grabs his own tomahawk, and he walks up, and he bashes in the brains of his own warrior that failed to win the wrestling match. And hands him the scalp. And throws the scalp to the Iroquois. And then sends in the next wrestler. And once again, another Iroquois wrestler. You know, it, maybe the first time it was a Seneca wrestler. Now you've got to fight a Cayuga wrestler versus another Erie. And once again, throws him right to the ground and pins him in a wrestling match. And spares him. And spares him only to have the Erie Chief come up and bash his brains in. And then that happens a third time. Yep. So now picture an Oneida warrior coming up and schooling the Erie. And once again, the Chief walks up with his bloody tomahawk and bashes his head in. At this point, the Iroquois have said they've had enough. They're, they're taking their uh, game door prizes and they're heading home. So the, the games have actually caused a lot worse relations than they were trying to solve yeah some people were thinking this this could be a friendly match to to increase our friendship with our neighboring nation and it's basically done the exact opposite and so the iroquois need to get out of there with they'll be lucky if they get out with their lives in the meanwhile the the erie are all riled up and ready for war at this point yeah. black snake claims in this narrative that the iroquois showed up without weapons so if that was true uh, all the more reason to want to get out of there very quickly. Um, but then once they get back to Iroquois, it's a general feeling that they have a feeling that the Erie are probably going to launch a sneak attack on them at some point soon. That's right. And luckily for the Iroquois in the story, it talks about a Seneca woman who had been abducted in a mourning war in the past by the Erie and was married to an, an Erie man who had died and now she was a widow in the village. But she was a Seneca uh, from birth. And so she hears that the Erie are planning a raid into her home country. Yes. All the chiefs are gathered around the campfire that night. And they're saying, if all five of these nations are together, uh, we won't be able to take them on. But if we strike secretly, we go in with every man we have, take out the, take Seneca. Out the Seneca, and then just go right down the line. Don't give them a chance to gather up. We can wipe out the entire league. Mm -hmm. And so this woman realizes you know they're coming back to her homeland and so she sneaks out of the village gets to the niagara river finds a canoe gets across uh, the lake and then makes it all the way back to onondaga and tells them they she says the erie are coming they are planning on launching a secret attack on the seneca everybody needs to unite now we need to get all the tribes together and we need to come out and meet them and so they hold an, an emergency council session we remember that, you know, obviously, they got fast runners. They won the competition, right? So they're getting runners out to all the villages, and they come back and they decide, yes, we need to 
muster some men to get out and meet these Eries. Now, they didn't just get a small number of people, Caleb. Yeah, that's right. They managed to gather 5,000 warriors between the five nations. That's a big number. Yeah. And they broke them into two groups. They broke them into a group of 4,000. And then they kept the youngest, like fastest warriors in a reserve in a, in a group of 1,000. And One, these, these warriors had never seen battle before. Yeah, these, these are the... These are teenagers, most likely, just up and coming that have not seen battle yet. Mm -hmm. That's right. So they're gathering. I'm not sure if they got all these men on the far side or as they marched. I imagine people started falling in, and then you got to the 5,000. So they, you know, they started gathering all the way over in the Adirondacks region in the Mohawk Valley, and you know they got their thousand men and they start walking through. Then they get through the Onondaga and they grab some more in Oneida. And by the time they get to the Seneca, they have 5,000 men. But the Erie are already on their way. In That's fact, right. they're already in Seneca territory. They've crossed, the, they've crossed over. You know, they, they don't have to cross the river per se because they're already down in the Ohio area. But they've made it past the Genesee River, mm -hmm. which is the main dividing line. So at this point, the 5,000 warriors are around the area, we'll say Canadegua, on the north end of Canadegua Lake, and they're heading west towards the Genesee River. When they hear from their scouts that the Erie are already between the Genesee River and Honeyoy Lake. So those of you that don't live around western New York, it's probably, I guess, uh, say 20 miles from Canadegua Lake to Honeyoy Lake. Yeah, about and that. And then maybe another 20 miles, 15 miles to the Genesee River. Mm -hmm. So... You've got a lot of Erie and a lot of a lot of Iroquois already getting really close to each other yeah. at this point. The Seneca surprised them because the Erie are just thinking we're going to come in and do a sneak attack and destroy the Seneca, but they've, they're running into the whole confederation coming at once. But the Erie did not show up to a gunfight with just a knife. They've got their whole contingency of warriors too. And so they meet up. And it's just a maddening free-for-all. Uh, Black Snake mentions that they were fighting hand, tooth, and nail. Club one-on-one -on -one fighting. Um, pretty much they had mentioned that it was a stream probably where um, Hemlock and Canadice Lake outlets come out. And it was a stream that they were crossing back and forth trying to take each side of the stream. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind that the, the, the Iroquois are engaging in this battle, but they kept that thousand group of reserve troops in the back where the Erie had no idea that they even existed. And this battle took a long time. I, I, I think it, it said that it, uh, it had like eight different attacks and counterattacks where yeah. they're fighting up the hill then pushing back down. Trying to get to the strategic spot by crossing the creek and getting the hills. As you know, the Finger Lakes region is notorious for creeks and hills and you want to get the high ground and you want to get them surrounded. Uh, meanwhile, while this is going on, people are, you know, People are getting killed. Some people may be getting captured and taken back. So what happens with these thousand people, Caleb? So at the point of exhaustion for both groups, the, the, the chief of the Iroquois decides, okay, on our next push, the, the Erie are going to you know, go back up the hill and basically they're going to take their little rest and get ready for the next one. So he sends his, thousand, his group of thousand young warriors around the hill. And he tells them to attack as soon as they get up there because he knows that they're going to be exhausted from fighting the rest of them. And so they're going to be, by the time they get back up their hill to rest, they're going to be at their biggest point of exhaustion. And then all of a sudden you have a thousand young 
fresh troops that are just going to come pouring in from behind them, and then they can push through from both sides and just annihilate them. Yep. And so that's exactly what happened. They get up the hill, and if you've ever climbed a hill, especially one of these hills around here in the Finger Lakes, it's it's not easy, especially if you're running up, you've been fighting all day, and then all of a sudden you get waylaid and, and blasted on the side. And so it turns into a route. The Erie turn around, and once you got people turning their back, that's when the real casualties can start, mm-hmm. right? And so the, the Iroquois start pursuing them, and they pursue them all the way back to... Uh, to the Erie borders. In a lot of battles, it's it's kind of common for once the battle's won, you start plundering. You just start, you know, going through the bodies, taking weapons, things like that. But that's not what the Iroquois did. They they chased them all the way back to their nation. So that's a summarized version of Black Snake's story on what caused them to go to war with the Erie and how they were defeated. Uh, we'll post a link to the entire story if you wish to read it on our website with this episode. Yep. Now, there are some other accounts of um, how the Erie ended up getting destroyed. Now, this is a huge battle which has taken place on Iroquois territory, but they realized that we need to attack into Erie territory and do what we've done to the neutrals, to these guys, because if they have a chance to come back, who knows, they could sneak in next time and destroy the Seneca and us not know about it. Now, the Erie, on the flip side, realized that they've really, really pissed off the Iroquois. And so they send a delegation to the Seneca saying, we're so sorry. We'd like to have a peace. And so they send 30 messengers to the Seneca town, the chief town of Ganondigan. Um, But things kind of go south because one of the Erie and one of the Seneca guy get into a disagreement about something, who knows what. And in the brawl, the Erie ends up killing a Seneca guy. It's really not good on your diplomatic peace mission if you end up killing someone while you're in their hometown. So what do you think they did to these 30 delegates that were there, Caleb? They killed every single one of <laughs> they them. They killed every single one of them. They are really getting annoyed at these Erie. Uh, meanwhile, back in the Erie homeland, probably in this battle or in another skirmish, they had captured one of the Onondaga chiefs named Anirias. He was back there, and they were getting ready to kill him, ritualistically torture him. And as they're getting ready to do this to him, he says, Look, guys, we've been fighting these battles and these wars. It's not good for either one of us. Uh, You've gotten the, the Seneca really mad at you. But if you let me live, I can go back, and you sparing my life would go a long way. Picture... Picture somebody high up in the government, maybe the president or the vice president or somebody, the secretary of state. If a country had captured them and released them, it could pretty much be a lot of goodwill, right? And so the Erie talk among themselves and they say, you know what? We think that's a great idea. There's a woman here whose uh, brother died in one of these battles, and we were going to let you be the, the sacrifice, the adoptional torture sacrifice, but... Um, she's a nice person, and I think that she would like to ceremonially adopt you as her brother, and then we can send you out as a peace delegate to the Onondaga, and we can stop this war from happening. And so all the Erie are thinking, this is, this is great. This will stop the war. Um, but the sister's not here when this decision is made, and women generally don't like it when you make decisions without their consent. Mm-hmm. 
So if you can imagine uh, your family was just killed, and then you walk into your village and you say, don't worry about it, he's going to be your son now. It doesn't, make, doesn't that make everything all better? Also, keep in mind, in their culture, it was the woman that had the right to decide whether he was adopted or killed. Mm -hmm. And they just made this decision without her permission. Um, but they just assumed that she was a nice, loving person. But obviously, she was not having any of it. She did not want this Anadaga Iroquois to become her adopted uh, family member. And she says, no, I want him dead. And the Eerie are like... All their mouths drop. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't understand. We've got him dressed. We put on some nice robes. Uh, he is decked out. We are ready to do the adoption ceremony right now. We just may have lost this huge battle, and this is our out. Yeah. <laughs> this is our only chance. But like we said, in their culture, it's her choice. Uh -huh. And she is animate. She said, no, I want him dead. I want revenge for my family member. And they come in, and they, they walk in, and uh, they sh talk to the chief, and they say, uh, we're really sorry <laughs> about this, but she wants you dead. And this is our this is our law. This is we are bound by this. And so they take off his ceremonial robes that he's about to be adopted, and they lead him up to a wooden scaffolding, and they they start getting ready to torture and burn him. And and he had some last words, didn't he? He had some last words and very prophetic words. And he says that summarize: you're making a big mistake, and if you burn me, you are burning your entire nation along with me. Can you imagine if a high dignitary, the Secretary of State, was captured and publicly executed on live TV? Do you think that the U.S. government would have their fighter jets in there bombing the heck out of them the next day? And so the guy is burned to death. And as these reports trickle out to the Seneca and then the Onondaga, who, where he's from, of what's happened, they say... There's no dealing with these eerie people. They, they've invaded us. They come as a peace delegation, and they kill one of our guys. They insult us at their games, and now they've burned one of our chiefs. What would you do? What kind of tolerance do you have? Where do you draw the line where anything but total and utter victory is what's required? Now, in the following year, probably August or September of 1654, 1,200 Onondaga and 700 Mohawk enter Erie territory. And as the Iroquois approach, the Erie, obviously, they're going to fall back because they've been severely weakened by these other battles, and so they're falling back to their palisaded fortresses. Now, it says that at this time in this town, there's probably about 2,000 warriors, plus women and children. So... Comparably, the numbers are about the same. you got about 1,900 on 2,000. And they've got the palisaded village, so they've got the defensive position. Now, one thing we didn't mention, Caleb, is the Erie were well known for having uh, a very interesting thing about their arrows, right? Yeah, the Eries were kind of masters in the poison district. Uh, unlike a lot of other people, they, they realized quick that if you shoot somebody with an arrow and it grazes them, then they go back home and they heal and then they fight you another day. But if you put a little poison on your arrow, uh, you don't have to worry about that warrior at your next battle. Mm -hmm. So the Erie were renowned. We don't know what kind of poison or what they did to the arrows, but it is very well documented that they were well known for having poison-tipped arrows. 
And so what's your main defense? If you're back held up in your little castle fort, you're gonna shower them with arrows, right? And so that's exactly what happens. Uh, they get showered by arrows and they're forced to draw back. But the Iroquois have two people that um, have acquired some French clothing and they show up um, acting as Frenchmen. And they demand that the Erie surrender. And they say, if you don't surrender, you're all gonna die. And he said, the master of life is on the side of the Iroquois. They, they're starting to get a little puffed up now, realizing that we've taken out the Huron, we've taken out the Winro, we've taken out the Neutrals, we've beaten back the Mohicans. And they've recently been baptized. So the, the chiefs are starting to think, maybe this, this new god that we've accepted is on our side. And so they say, the master of life is on our side. And the Erie shout back, Who's the master of your lives? And the Iroquois reply very poetically, the hatchets and our right arms are the master of our lives. Pretty much saying, these guns, these, these metal tomahawks, these are our masters, and they're going to destroy you, so you need to give up. The parlay does not go well. They get barraged by another assault of arrows. They're severely wounded, and they're forced to retreat. But then the Iroquois have started to learn a bit about siege craft. And so they begin to build walls and they make a makeshift little fort, fortress outside of their stronghold, but they can't get inside. As time went on, they say, hey, I got an idea. We got all the canoes back at the river landing. Why don't we grab those? And so they bring the canoes up and they're using the canoes as like ram covers. To get up and then they get up to the palisaded wall Caleb and they start stacking the canoes and making a ladder to get up to the side and then they've got ropes with hooks and once they get to the top they can insert the hooks and climb back and they literally pull the wall down now if you're inside a palisaded area it's great for defense but it's not so good if all of a sudden it's breached right because what's the problem it becomes your prison you can't get out right and so you've got 2,000 warriors crammed into this space along with all the women and children, and now you're totally trapped. And it's just a massacre again. And so they're utterly destroyed, and the survivors are taken back um, to the Seneca land and assimilated. Now this doesn't come without great cost for the Iroquois because it says that the ground was knee-deep in blood. And then, at the same time while this was happening, uh, reinforcement of, Eri of Erie showed up, and so they had to come back and fight them. And so while this is going on, the Iroquois are incredibly victorious, but they've got to deal with all kinds of people that are wounded from these poison arrows, from different wounds, and so they've destroyed and defeated the Erie, but they're too weak to go back, and so they spend the next month and a half to two months staying in the village that they've just conquered so that they can heal up to make the journey back. But at the end of the day, they burn the village, take the rest of the Erie home, and that's pretty much the most of it. The Onondaga do take a further attack in 1665, but that's pretty much it. The whole area of the Allegheny and Northern Ohio is now totally depopulated, and it's open for beaver business. And so we're gonna see now that the Seneca have this whole area as right to conquest and they have a whole new region to start hunting and start trapping. 
and they don't a lot of other countries we think of Europeans once you've conquered a nation you move in and start inhabiting it setting up as a colony or just an expansion of your empire but they pretty much decided to remain home and for uh, the time being it's just going to be hunting grounds Seneca will start moving in in the future but for now it's just to go out and do a little more hunting and a little more trapping and this is the point in the Iroquois League where we start to see a lot of the power that the Mohawk had for the first 100 years of contact start to switch, and you're going to see a big rise in power of the Seneca. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of warriors are fallen, but now you've got, you've got Huron, and you've got Wenro, and Neutral, and Erie, and most of these people are getting adopted into the Seneca. And some are getting adopted in other tribes, but the Seneca are the closest, so they're getting the most adoptees. It's going to get to the point where two-thirds, 66% of the Seneca nation is going to be made up of these captured people and their descendants. It goes to show you what their culture was like, because I feel like in any other country, uh, you would come in, and if there was that many of you, you would all be saying, let's let's rise up and take this place. Mm-hmm. Uh the, the, the Jews, there's getting to be too many Jews in uh, in Egypt. It's time to wipe them out. But that's not how it was. It's like once they were adopted, they were part of the family. They just accepted it, and that was their role There in was life. no discrimination. There was no taunting or teasing. You, you assimilate. You take part in our culture and our way of life, and you've still got your, your things, and you're still your own person. But, yeah, they accepted you. It wasn't... It wasn't genocide as we think of it. It mm-hmm. was, it was national genocide in the destroying the nation, but the remnant people they had no hard feelings for. It's really unique when you look at it throughout the history of the world. You, our Western mindsets can't think of it. It's really totally different the way Native Americans fought their their wars and their battles. The Iroquois are not going to stop here in Ohio. This is going to continue to expand out. And next time we'll be talking about more the relations with the French and with the Susquehanna, who are to the south. And the French relations are going to break down and there's going to be some invasions by the French coming up. So tune in next time when we talk about that. Bye, everybody.